if you once kept for yourself 7,000 in the time of Baal worship, if you kept a remnant for yourself in the time of Paul, then you have authority tonight to take a remnant for yourself. And so I pray that across this room here and in the room that will hear me tomorrow morning, you will take for yourself a remnant. Lord, come and help us. Deliver me, I pray, from pride and self-preoccupation, self-consciousness. Grant me and all of us to be swept up into Christ, into his word. Teach us now. Make us serious on this day, I pray. Guard us from distraction. Grant faith. Bring believers into existence tonight and on this Lord's day. Come, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If we want to know God deeply, and personally, we have to take him on his own terms. You can't come to God and say, give me a dream. Give me a list. Give me a list of attributes. You can't, some, you can't come and say, give me an authority. Give me a human authority to tell me what to believe. You have to take him on his own terms because if you come to God and say those kinds of things, he will say, I gave you a Bible. Go to the Bible. You will meet me there. I will reveal myself to you there. Know me in the Bible. But when we come to the Bible, we have to take the Bible on its own terms. We have to take God on his own terms in the Bible. And when you come to the Bible, what you find when you take it as a whole is a story. You have a, a history. Begins with predestination. Moves to creation. Tower of Babel. Dispersing of the nations. The choosing of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the period of the patriarchs. The moving down into Egypt and the 400 years of captivity and bondage for the Jewish people there. The Exodus, grand event in Israel's history. The giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The wandering in the wilderness. The crossing of the Jordan into the promised land and the period of the judges when everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And then the great period of the monarchy with Saul and David and Solomon, and then the horrific breach of Israel and Judah for centuries, and the prophetic word landing on Israel and Judah, and then the terrible, critical 
sweeping away into exile in Assyria and Babylon, and then the little remnant that returns, and then 500 years of silence, and then the cataclysmic most important event in history, Jesus Christ Messiah comes into the world, lives a perfect life, dies for sinners, rises again, ascends to the Father, pours out the Holy Spirit, the church begins to spread, Jerusalem is leveled in 70 AD, and the gospel reaches the nations, even us creating this church. That's what you find when you go to the Bible. You find a story. You've got to have God on his own terms. You will not find in the Bible a systematic theology. I love systematic theology books. But God didn't present it that way. He gave himself in history, and then he gave a book about the events. It records the events, and it interprets the events. And in the Bible, we have the decisive events of history by which we interpret all the other events of history. All of history is about God. History exists to display God. The universe exists to display God. The reason you and I, America, Iraq, Africa, Asia, South America, the reason all peoples and all history exist is to display what God is like. Romans 11, like no other chapter in the New Testament, makes this plain that God reveals himself in the way he acts in history. The way he acts toward Israel and the way he acts towards the nations, and the way he acts towards Israel, again. This chapter shows that history really matters because it's all about God. Step back and let that sink in. The Bible says that nature, the universe, the natural world, is declaring the glory of God. Psalm 19, verse 1. And it says that Israel exists in history for the same reason. Jeremiah 13, 11. I made the whole house of Israel and the house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. He chose Israel to be a glory for himself. It's the same reason Christ came into the world at the center of history. Listen to what he said the night before he died. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's why he came to the hour of the middle of history, the center of all events was by dying to glorify the name of his Father. The reason the church exists and has advanced around the world is for the same thing. Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. Amen, Paul said. 
And it's the reason God raises up all secular rulers everywhere for his glory. Pharaoh, Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian victor over God's people, when he lost his mind and became like an animal eating grass with fingernails like bird's claws and hair like eagle's feathers, what did it mean to get his reason back again? What did he say when he got his reason back again? He said, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? All of history, secular and redemptive, is a revelation of the glory of God. It's a revelation of who God is and the way He acts in the world. All of history is a canvas being painted by a very mysterious artist, including the revelation of his pain and horror and injustice as a backdrop for his wrath and justice and grace. What is God like? That's what history is about. And we usually see it, we almost only see it as a work in progress. The only way you can catch a glimpse of the world any other way than a work in progress is in the Bible where reasons are given for why things are happening the way they're happening and where they're going to end up. The Bible gives the decisive events. Jesus is the center of the decisive events. And so the Bible is the record of the events and their interpretation by which we interpret all other events. Romans 11 is a spectacular display of what I've been saying. Romans 11 is a spectacular display of the strange artistry of God on the canvas of the world. It simply blows your mind away, which is why as soon as he's done telling the story, he says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and how inscrutable are his judgments. And my prayer for tonight and tomorrow, my prayer is that we would get inside the inscrutability and not stand outside of it and say, I don't think I like that. 
You have to take him on his own terms. You have to get into the history. You have to listen to the Lord's interpretation of what he's doing. If you stand outside and criticize God, you'll never see the glory. That will take a work of grace today. Let me give you a flavor of what I mean. I feel the need to preface Romans 11 this way because we're going, to, we're going to hit things almost immediately that for some of you are just going to be staggering. You will have never thought you would think this way about God. So let's just get a glimpse of the end of the story and the summary of the chapter so that you can catch your breath, smell the aroma, taste the flavor of what we're about to see, and ask the Lord to give you grace to reverence it rather than criticize it. Verses 30, 31, and 32 of chapter 11, I want to read as a summary statement that Paul gives of what he's been talking about for 30 verses. Just as you, and he's referring now to the Gentiles, just as you were one, at one time disobedient to God, and God had let the Gentiles and the nations go their own way while he worked with Israel, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, that is Israel's, disobedience. So now line this up in your head. They were disobedient. Israel, with whom he had been working, is now decisively disobedient in rejecting her Messiah. And because of that disobedience, you now are receiving mercy. That's history. That's awesome. That's breathtaking. Verse 31. So also they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy. Now, let's put the whole thing out here. There was a, a Gentile season of disobedience while God worked with Israel for 2,000 years. The Messiah comes into the world and there's a decisive disobedience on the part of Israel as they reject their Messiah. Because of that disobedience, mercy comes to the Gentiles. And because of that mercy to the Gentiles, eventually mercy comes now to Israel. For, verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Which is followed by how unsearchable are his ways and how inscrutable are his judgments. To which you might say, let's just skip it. Let's just go to John 3.16. Let's just go someplace simple. 
I am tempted. I really am tempted. Because people will leave the church over this chapter. I happen to trust God in the wisdom of what he puts in the Bible. This is good for us. This is good for our marriages. This is good for our parenting. It's good for our children. It's good for our bodies. It's good for our being businessmen and businesswomen. And you may not be able to grasp that now, and I'm just asking you, trust God. It's in his word. And to know him as he reveals himself in history, I think the American church is by and large way too big on immediate application. Way too big. We demand immediate relevance and immediate application. And if it doesn't fix something in my family now, I want another church. That kind of church and preaching in 50 years is a sitting duck for the devil and every heresy that comes along. I got a letter in the mail today that's about to break my heart if I understand it the way I understand it. About a major Christian ministry in this country everybody knows that has taken a turn that looks to me absolutely crazy doctrinally. And I thought if this is true it's because for 50 years, they've been so thin on doctrine. So I hope it's not true. So I invite you to get inside God, inside his history where he reveals himself for your good. He wants you to know the whole God, not a little skinny God, not a little thin God, not a little granddaddy God, the whole massive universe sustaining and ruling God. That'll get you through. That'll bring you to glory. That'll help you be unashamed when you stand before him and catch your breath. So let's go to chapter 11, verse 1 to 6. God does four things here. Number one, something he does not do. God does not reject his people. Verse one, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. So Paul declares something God does not do, reject his people. Number two, something he does do, namely, foreknow them. Verse two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Third, now something he did and is doing in Paul's day, namely, keep for himself a remnant. Verse 4, in Elijah's day, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Hear the sovereignty in that, folks. He didn't say, they happened to survive unbelief. I kept them. Know this, Elijah. Know this, Paul, when you tremble and wonder whether the church will survive. I kept them for myself. Verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant. Number 4, how did he do it? through election, by grace. 
chosen by grace. So, next week, we will talk about grace and election and how election and grace produce a remnant. That's next week. Today, I want to talk about God's not rejecting His people rooted in His foreknowing them. Now, by way of review, when Paul says in verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected His people? And he answers, by no means. He argues for that by saying, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And so the conclusion you have to draw is that the people in verse 1 who he has not rejected are Israelites, ethnic Israel. They're not the remnant. They're not the church mixed of Jew and Gentile because Paul's argument would make no sense if it were. He says, God has not rejected his people. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. The argument demands that the people in verse 1 be the Jewish people. God has not rejected the Jewish people. And somebody asked me after the service last week, does that mean then, are you saying all Jews of all time will be saved because God doesn't reject the totality of Israel. And I said, no, that's not what I meant, and that's not what Jesus or Paul or the prophets taught. For example, Jesus said, I tell you, many will come. He's talking about Gentiles. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's very clear. Gentiles will come and some of those who should have inherited will not. He said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Those were the Jewish teachers of his day. Paul, chapter 2 of Romans, said, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So Jesus and Paul, and we could go back to the prophets, do not believe or teach that every Jewish person or any other ethnic person will automatically be saved because of their Jewishness or ethnicity. So then, question, 
What does the people refer to in verse 1 precisely? If it's not every single individual that's ever lived who's a Jew, and you say it's Israel, well then what do you mean when you say God has not rejected Israel? God has not rejected His people. And one possible answer that might be suggested would be the remnant. That's referred to in the following verses. Verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And those are the people of Israel. Those are the Jews, the remnant of Israel, those who believe in the Messiah. He hasn't rejected those. That is almost the right answer, but it's not the right answer. And the reason we know it's not the right answer, but almost the right answer, is because in verse 1, the existence of a remnant was not in question. Paul had made really clear in chapter 9 and 10, there's no question that a remnant is being saved. Chapter 9, verse 27, a remnant will be saved of Jews and Gentiles. Coming into chapter 11, nobody reading what Paul has been saying would say, I'm not sure there's a remnant. What they're saying is, in spite of the remnant, what about Israel? So, my interpretation of verse 1, people that are not rejected, is the corporate whole of ethnic Israel alive in any generation. Just when you think of all Israel, you don't mean every individual that's ever existed over centuries, and you don't mean the remnant who are now believing in Jesus, you mean Judaism, alive, in the world, active, as a whole, corporate entity. That's not hard to get your hand around. We know what that means. There is a reality in every generation called Israel, Judaism, taken as a whole. And that's what people are concerned about when they ask the question, has God rejected them? It looks like he has. The vast majority of them aren't believing in Jesus in every generation. So my conclusion that what Paul is asserting here, and he will assert with six arguments in this chapter, so if you think you need more arguments, I hope you stay around to get them. Verse 15, verse 16, verse 24, verse 25, verse 28, verse 31. These are all arguments for this point that ethnic Israel taken as a whole, as a corporate entity alive in any generation, is what God says. I have not abandoned that reality. Now, let's connect it with foreknowing. Verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, the point of saying that is to provide a foundation for the certainty of the non-rejection. I haven't rejected them. They're foreknown. So there's an argument here going on. There's a basis. There's a support here. I haven't rejected them. I foreknew them. I can't reject them. I foreknew them. If he foreknew them, he cannot reject them. That's the argument. 
So what does it mean that he foreknew them? What is that? The clearest place in the Bible where God's knowing of the corporate entity called Israel alive at any given time is Amos chapter 3 verse 2. And it goes like this. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Known. You, Israel, only have I known. And so centuries later, you speak of him of foreknowing. And when you ask, is this family that he knew rejected? He says, no, I foreknew them. I knew them once upon a time. I knew them. Almost everybody, virtually all scholars, all interpreters, take Amos 3.2 to mean, I chose them. Like a wife is known by a husband. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a child. Depart from me, you wicked. I never knew you, Jesus says. Knowing in the Bible at this level of knowing is not just knowing about. He knew about every people group. And when he says, you only, Israel, have I known, he means, you only have I set my eyes upon I've made you the apple of my eye. I have freely elected you and chosen you, and I will work with you. And Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, meaning if he foreknew them, if he chose them, he's not going to abandon them. The corporate reality of Israel will one day become Christian and join the church in mass. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I'm sure you're wondering, well, what do you think is going to happen? And that's where we're going to wind up at the end of chapter 11. I don't believe there are two plans, one for Israel, one for the church. It's not my theology. I don't think it's biblical. One plan, one people of God. Right now, the Jews are broken off branches, and we have been grafted into the one people. The day will come when the natural branches will be grafted in again, and there will be one promise, one covenant, one people, Christ's people, Jew and Gentile. It will just happen to include the entirety of the people of Israel, which will be an awesome day. The fact that there's a remnant, the fact that there's a remnant in Paul's mind signals the fact that he will care one day for the totality of Israel. That's the only way the argument works. He has not rejected his people a remnant exists. And you should say, well, yeah, a remnant exists, but we're concerned about all the people. 
And he's going to argue it's coming very soon, 15, 16. If there's a remnant, the whole lump of dough is going to be leavened by the remnant. If the root is holy, the whole tree is going to one day be holy. If they are natural branches, they will one day be grafted in again. If by their disobedience, mercy came to the Gentiles, then by mercy coming to the Gentiles, one day mercy will come to those who were disobedient that they might find mercy. Let me give you a confirmation of this in verse 28. You can look at it with me. 1128. Here's some more breathtaking words. We say them with trembling. We say them with our faces to the ground in humility and in meekness and in love. As regards the gospel, they, that is Israel, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. That's not the remnant. The remnant are not enemies of God for anybody's sake. They're not enemies of God. The ones who are enemies of God are the ones who decisively, corporately disobeyed and rejected their Messiah. They are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election... And I'm equating that with foreknowledge because that's the way the argument works. As regards foreknowledge, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. God set his favor upon the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He made a covenant with the fathers. He bound himself to the fathers. And for their sake, he will one day bring all Israel into the seed of the fathers, Jesus Christ. And therefore, I find a confirmation here that foreknowing as the ground of our certainty that they will not be rejected is the same as being chosen by God because the word election is used here in the same argument. We speak this with trembling. I am perfectly aware that if reporters from the Minneapolis Tribune wanted to come here on a Saturday night and record these messages, they could take sentence after sentence out of here plaster it in the paper and call this church anti-Semitic. It may happen in the next nine months. But just be aware that you can't take sentences out of context. You can't take them out of services like that. They might arrive in the morning there in the downtown site and do the same thing. You can't take them even out of a video context. I say it with trembling when I say they are enemies of God. There's no hostility in that. There's no gloating in that. There's only brokenheartedness. There's only longing. There's only yearning. There's only praying. Oh God, lift the veil. 
Oh God, remove the hardening. Oh God, save that they might see Jesus who loved them and gave himself for them. That's the attitude. Let me close like this. I want to try to call for an application in your own lives. I know that most of us in these rooms are Gentiles. Not all, but most. What if, what if people were asking the opposite question? I ask this to us now. What if people were asking the opposite question and they said, has God rejected the Gentiles? And suppose they looked your way for an answer. I wonder if you would be able to give the answer Paul gave tonight, Sunday. I wonder if you would be able to give the answer that Paul gave. Namely, no, he hasn't rejected the Gentiles because I myself am a Gentile and I'm not rejected. And it isn't primarily or first because of the forefathers. It's because of Jesus Christ. It's because my sins are forgiven through his death. It's because his righteousness has been imputed to me. It's because I have been freed from my guilt and my condemnation has been taken away. It isn't because I have any ethnic connections. It's not because I've been born of Ruth and Bill Piper. It's because I've been born of the Holy Spirit who changed my heart and awakened faith and brought me to Christ. I wonder if you would be able to say, he hasn't rejected Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. And the argument would hold for you. My prayer is that it would hold. That you would understand that salvation isn't by Jewishness. Nothing I am saying implies any individual Jew will be saved because he's a Jew. We're not saved by any ethnicity at all. We're saved by Jesus Christ, the Jew, who gave himself for his people and not for them only, but for the sins of the whole world. And so tonight I, I feel a kind of enlargement of heart. If you understand this, that, that Jesus would like to get his arms around here and Sunday morning he'd like to get his arms around this people and say, for my sake, my blood, my righteousness, you may be saved, you may be part of the people. You may get the inheritance of Israel. And so may the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah, receive the reward of his suffering. And may you all, may you all receive the safety, the security, the stability of being in him.